Chapter Four, Part Two of the Night Operator. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. Chapter Four, Part Two. It was half past five when Flanagan went out of the super's office. It was but ten minutes later when, before he had decanted a drop from the bottle he had just lifted to fill his glass, he slapped the bottle back on the bar of the blazing star with a sudden jerk. From down the street in the direction of the yards boomed three long blasts from the shop whistle, the wrecking signal. It came again and again. Men around him began to move. Chairs from the little tables were pushed hurriedly back. The bell in the English chapel took up the alarm. It stirred the blood in Flanagan's veins and whipped it to his cheeks in fierce excitement. It was the call to arms. He turned from the bar and stopped like a man stunned. There had been times in the last six months when he had not responded to that call because, deaf to everything, he had not heard it. Then it had been his call, the call for the wrecking crew, and, first of all, for the wrecking boss. Now... There was a dazed look on his face, and his lips worked queerly. It was not for him. He was barred. Out. Slowly he turned back to the bar, rested his foot on the rail, and with a mirthless laugh and a shrug of his shoulders reached for the bottle again. He poured the whiskey glass full to the brim, and laughed once more and shrugged his shoulders as his fingers curled around it. He raised the glass and held it poised halfway to his lips. Quick-running steps came up the street. The swinging doors of the blazing star burst open, and a call-boy shoved in his head. "'Wreckers out! Wreckers out!' he bawled. "'Number 80's gone to glory in Spider-Cut. Everybody's killed!' And he was gone. A grimy-faced harbinger of death and disaster, gone, speeding with his summons to wherever men were gathered throughout the little town. An instant Flanagan stood motionless as one transformed from flesh to sculptured clay. Then the glass slid from his fingers and crashed into tinkling splinters on the floor. The liquor splashed his boots. Number 80 was the eastbound Coast Express. Like one who moves in unknown places through the dark, so then Flanagan moved toward the door. Men looked at him in amazement and stood aside to let him pass. Something was tugging at his heart, beating at his brain, impelling him forward, a force irresistible that in its first sudden overwhelming surge he could not understand, could not grasp, could not focus into concrete form, could only obey. He passed out through the doors, and then for the first time a cry rang from his lips. There was no halting, stumbling, uncertain steps now. Men running down the street called to Flanagan as he sped past them. Flanagan made no answer, did not look their way. His face, strained and full of dumb anguish, was set toward the station. He gained the platform and raced along it. Shouts came from across the yards. Up and down the spurs fluttered the foreshortened little yard engine, coughing sparks and wheezing from her exhaust as she bustled the wrecking train together. Lamps swung and twinkled like fireflies, for it was just opening spring and the dark fell early, and in front of the roundhouse the 1014, blowing hard from her safety under a full head of steam like a thoroughbred that sensed the race, was ready on the table. 
With a heave of his great shoulders and a sweep of his arms, Flanagan won through the group of trainmen, shop hands, and loungers clustered around the door and took the stairs four at a leap. A light burned in the super's office, but the voices came from the dispatcher's room, and there in the doorway Flanagan halted, halted just for a few seconds' pause while his eyes swept the scene before him. Regan, the master mechanic by the window, was mouthing curses under his breath as men do in times of stress. Spence, the dispatcher, white-faced, the hair straggling into his eyes, was leaning over the key under the green-shaded lamp, over the key clearing the line while the sounder clicked in his ears of ruin and of lives gone out. Harvey, the division engineer, was there, pulling savagely at a briar with empty bowl, and at the dispatcher's elbow stood Carleton, a grim commander, facing tidings of disaster, his shoulders braced and bent a little forward as though to take the blow, his jaws clamped tight till the lips compressed were bloodless, and the chiseled lines on his face told of the bitterness in his heart. Then Flanagan stepped forward. "'Carlton!' he cried, and his words came like panting sobs. "'Carlton, give me back my job!' It was no place for Flanagan." Carlton's cup was already full to overflowing, and he swung on Flanagan like a flash, his hand lifted and pointed to the door. "'Get out of here,' he said between his teeth. "'Carlton!' cried Flanagan again, and his arms went out in supplication toward the super. "'Carlton, give me back my job. Give it back to me for tonight, just for tonight!' "'No!' the single word came from Carlton's lip like a thunderclap. Flanagan shivered a little and shrank back. "'Just for tonight,' he mumbled hoarsely. "'Just for—' "'No!' Carlton's voice rang hard as flint. "'I tell you no! Get out of here!' Harvey moved suddenly, threateningly, toward Flanagan, and as suddenly Flanagan, roused by the act, brushed the division engineer aside like a plaything, sprang forward, and with a quick, fierce grip caught Carlton's arms and pinioned them vice-like to his sides. "'And I tell you yes!' His voice rose dominant with the power, the will that shook him now to the depths of his turbulent soul. As a man who knows no law, no obstacle, no restraint, as a man who would batter down the gates of hell itself to gain his end, so then was Flanagan. I tell you yes, I tell you yes. My wife and baby's in that wreck tonight. Turmoil shouts. The short, quick, intermittent hiss of steam as the 1014 her cylinder cocks opened back down the platform. The clash of coupling cars, a jumbled medley of sounds, floated up from the yard without. But within the little room, the chattering sounder for the moment stilled, there was a silence as of death, and no man among them moved or spoke. Flanagan gray-faced, gasping, his mighty grip still on Carlton, his head thrown forward close to the other, stared into the super's face, and for a long minute, in the twitching muscles of the big wrecker's face, in the look that man reads seldom in his fellow's eyes, Carlton drew the fearful picture, lived the awful story that the babbling wire had told. Royal Carlton, square man and big of heart. His voice broke. God help you, Flanagan. Go. No word came from Flanagan's lips, only a queer choking sound as his hands dropped to his sides, only a queer choking sound as he turned suddenly and jumped for the door. On the stairs, Dorsey, the driver of the 1014, coming up for his orders, passed Flanagan's. 
Bad spill, I hear, growled the engineer as he went by. The 505's pony truck jumped the rails on the lower curve, and everything's in the ditch. Old Burke's gone out, and a heap of the passengers with him. I Flanagan heard no more. He was on the platform now. Coupled behind the derrick crane and the tool car were two coaches, improvised ambulances, and into these latter, instead of the tool car, the men of the wrecking crew were piling. A bad smash brought luxury for them. Shouts, cries, hubbub, a babel of voices were around him, but in his brain, repeated and repeated over and over again, lived only a phrase from the letter he had torn to pieces, stamped under heel that afternoon. The words were swimming before his eyes. Michael, dear, we've both been wrong. I'm bringing baby back on the Coast Express Friday night. Men with big black bags brushed by them and tumbled into the rear coach. The doctor's a big cloud to the last one of them. Dorsey came running from the station, a bit of tissue, his orders fluttering in his hand, and sprang for the cab. 1014's exhaust burst suddenly into quick, deafening explosions. The sparks shot volleying heavenward from her short stack. The big whirling drivers were beginning to bite, and then through the gangway, after the engineer, into the cab swung Flanagan. Flanagan, the wrecking boss. Spider Cut is the eastern gateway of the Rockies, and it lies, as the crow flies, sixteen miles west of Big Cloud. But the right-of-way, as it twists and turns, circling and dodging the buttes that grow from mounds to foothills, makes it on the blueprints twenty-one decimal seven. The running time of the fast flyers on this stretch is... Oh, what of that? Dorsey that night smashed all records, and the medical men in the rear coach tell to this day how they clung for life and limb to their seats and to each other, and most of them will admit, which is admitting much, that they were frightened, white-lipped men with broken nerves. As the wreck special, with a clash and clatter, shattered over the switches in the upper yard and nosed the main line, Stan Willard, who had the shovel end of it, with a snatch at the chain, swung open the furnace door, and a red glow lighted up the heavens. Dorsey turned in his seat and looked at the giant form of the wrecking boss behind him. They had told him the story in the office. The eyes of the two met. Flanagan's lips moved dumbly, and with a curious pleading motion he gestured toward the throttle. Dorsey opened another notch. He laughed a grim, hard laugh. "'I know!' he shouted over the roar. I know. Leave it to me, Flanagan. The bark of the exhaust came quicker and quicker, swelled and rose into the full, deep-toned thunder of a single note. Notch by notch, Dorsey opened out the 1014. Notch by notch, and the big mountain racer, answering like a mettlesome steed to the touch of the whip, leapt forward, ever faster, into the night. Now the headlight played on shining steel ahead, now suddenly threw a path of light across the short yellow stubble of a rising butte, and Dorsey checked grudgingly for an instant as they swung the curve, just for an instant, then into the straight again with wide-flung throttle. It was mad work, and in that reeling dizzy cab no man spoke. The sweep of the singing wind, the wild tattoo of beating trucks, the sullen whir of flying drivers was in their ears, while behind the derrick crane, the tool car and the coaches writhed and wriggled, swayed and lurched, tearing at their couplings, 
bouncing on their trucks, jerking viciously as each slew took up the axle-play, rolling, pitching crazily like cockle-shells tossed on an angry sea. Now they tore through a cut, and the walls took up the deafening roar and echoed and re-echoed it back in volume a thousandfold. Now into the open, and the sudden contrast was like the gasping breath of an imprisoned thing escaped. Now over culverts, trestles, spans, hollow, reverberating, the speed was terrific. Over his levers, bounding on his seat, Dorsey, tense and strained, leaned far forward, following the leaping headlights' glare, while staggering like a drunken man to keep his balance, the sweat standing out in glistening beads upon his grimy face, Stan Willard watched the flickering needle on the gauge, and his shovel clanged and swung, and in the corner, back of Dorsey, bent low to brace himself, thrown backward and forward with every lurch in the fantastic dancing light, like some tigerish, outraged animal crouched to spring, Flanagan, with head drawn into his shoulders, jaws outthrust, stared over the engineer's back, stared with never a look to right or left, stared through the cab glass to the right of way ahead, stared toward Spider Cut. Again and again, with sickening giddy shock, wheel-base lifted from the swing, the 1014 struck the tangents, hung a breathless space, and with a screech of crunching flanges found the rails once more. Again and again. But the story of that ride is the doctor's story. They tell it best. Dorsey made the run that night from Big Cloud to Spider Cut, 21.7 miles, in 19 minutes. There have been bad spills on the Hill Division, bad spills. But there have never been worse than on that Friday night when the 505 jumped the rails at the foot of the curve, coming down the grade just east of Spider Cut, shot over the embankment and piled the Coast Express, mahogany sleepers and all, into splintered wreckage forty feet below the right-of-way. As Dorsey checked and with screaming brake shoes the 1014 slowed. Flanagan, with a wild cry, leaped from the cab and dashed up the track ahead of the still-moving pilot. It was light enough. The cars of the wreck nearest him, the mail and baggage cars, had caught, and fanned by the wind into yellow flames were blazing like a huge bonfire. Shouts arose from below, cries, anguish, piercing from those imprisoned in the wreck. Figures, those of the crew and passengers who had made their escape, were moving hither and thither, working as best they might, pulling others through shattered windows and upcanted doors, laying those who were past all knowing beside the long row of silent forms already tenderly stretched along the edge of the embankment. A man, with face cut and bleeding, came running toward Flanagan. It was Kingsley, conductor of number 80. Flanagan jumped for him, grasped him by the shoulders, and stared without a word into his face. But Kingsley shook his head. "'I don't know, Flanagan,' he choked. "'She was in one of the first class, just ahead of the Pullmans. There's—there's there's no one come out of that car yet.' He turned away his head. "'We couldn't get to it.' "'Couldn't?' get to it. Flanagan's lips repeated the phrase mechanically. Then he looked and understood the grim significance of the words. He laughed suddenly, jarring hoarse, as it is not good to hear men laugh. And with that laugh Flanagan went into the fight. The details of that night no one man knows. 
There, in the shadow of the gray-walled Rockies, men, flint-hearted, calloused, rough and ready though they were, sobbed as they toiled. And when the derrick tackles creaked and moaned, axe and pick and bar swung and crashed and tore through splintering glass and ripping timber, what men could do they did. And through the hours Flanagan led them, tough, grizzled men, more than one dropped from sheer weariness, but ever Flanagan's great arms rose and fell, ever his mighty shoulders heaved, ever he led them on. What men could do, they did. But it was graying dawn before they opened a way to the heart of the wreck, the first-class coach that once ahead of the Pullmans was under them now. Flanagan, gaunt, burned and bleeding, a madman with reeling brain, staggered toward the jagged hole that they had torn in the flooring of the car. They tried to hold him back, the man who had spurred them through the night alternately with lashing curse and piteous prayer, the man who had worked with demon strength as no three men among them had worked, the man who was tottering now at the end in mind and body. They tried to hold him back for mercy's sake. But Flanagan shook them off and went, went laughing again the same fearful laugh with which he had begun the fight. He found her there, found her with a little bundle lying in the crook of her outstretched arm. She moaned and held it toward him, but Flanagan had gone his limit. His work was done. The tension broke. And when they worked their way to the far end of the car after him, those hard, grim-visaged followers of Flanagan, they found a man squatted on an upended seat, a woman beside him, death and desolation and huddled shapes around them, dandling a tiny infant in his arms, crooning a lullaby through cracked lips, crooning a lullaby to a little one, long hushed, already in its last sleep. Opinions differ, but Big Cloud today sides about solid with Regan. Flanagan, says the master mechanic. Flanagan's a pretty good reckon, boss, pretty good. I don't know of any better, since the Almighty had him on the carpet. He's got a plot up on the butte behind the town, he and Daisy with a little mound on it. They go up there every Sunday, never known them to miss. The man ain't likely to fall off the right away again as long as he does that, is he? Well, then forget it. He's been doing that for a year now. What? End of chapter 4